Welcome to the Unleash Your Best Clinical Self podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kopian. If you're a physiotherapist or other movement professional who feels like you're stuck in a rut, then my podcast is for you. This podcast is focused on helping you move from frustration to flow in your clinical practice. In each episode, I'll share strategies, approaches, and my latest thinking on how to improve your clinical performance and keep loving what you do. This is episode number 59, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about how to thrive in the face of uncertainty, and I'll be walking through three strategies to avoid overwhelm in your clinical practice. Before I dive in, though, I want to let you know that I have a newsletter where I write about these topics relating to clinical performance and how to improve it for yourself. Head over to 360clinician.com to sign up today. All right, let's dive into this topic of clinical uncertainty and overwhelm. The emotions of discomfort and self-doubt, overwhelm, distress, all these are pretty uncomfortable emotions. And the reality is that we can actually face them and deal with them on a daily basis. Sometimes I've had days where you're dealing with those emotions with every patient that you're seeing. And it sometimes feels like these emotions can always be hounding us and just always nipping at our heels. And... I think this is a reality of, of clinical practice. Um, and, and the challenge though, is that sometimes it's hard to know how to manage these emotions well, so that we are not always living in this place of constant fear and angst that just really eats at us over time and really, uh, wears us down. I think part of the reason that we can feel this discomfort and uncertainty is just the fact that no clinical problem uh, presents or no cl- clinical condition really uh, presents the same way. Uh, you know, say take a patient with partial rotator cuff tear, you know, what can seem routine at first really can become more challenging when you add, say a patient's poor kinesthetic awareness, or maybe they have some decreased motivation. Maybe they're dealing with depression. Maybe they have poor work-life balance, poor social supports, or maybe they just have really challenging work demands that are also making it tough for them, both from a motivation standpoint, but also from uh, just an impact on their ability to progress their treatment. And so all of these uncertainties can really shift our state from one of flow to one of dis-ease and distress. And it really doesn't take a lot. And so in today's episode, what I want to do is I want to talk about some of the unsuccessful ways that we use to try to deal with these emotions. And I'll also outline what I've called the distress accelerators. So these are three really key areas that can make things worse. On the flip side, they can make them better if they're working for you. But more often than not, uh, these can accelerate our levels of distress, which then can move us into overwhelm and eventually into a place of burnout. But I don't want to leave you with a you know d- depressing story of that. I also want to share with you three strategies on how to reframe how you interact with uncertainty and dis- discomfort and really tame that beast of overwhelm. So let's dive into this uh, and just really break down a little bit more about what these emotions look like. All right, so let's get started and unpack a little bit more about what these emotions are all about and how they come about and how they progress to a place of burnout. I think we can deal with uncertainty in in various areas in terms of our assessment, um, understanding, our diagnosis, our treatment planning, even that patient dynamic, right? Just those examples that I gave with the rotator cuff tear. And so when we deal with uncertainty, especially if they're complex problems, that can result in some sense of discomfort in ourselves. And that discomfort moves us out of a place of comfort and ease and into a place of discomfort. And that can be very temporary, but if it doesn't get resolved reasonably well, if we don't know how to manage that discomfort, 
it can then progress to a place of distress. And if distress starts to, again, stay ever present, that we can then end up in a place of overwhelm. And overwhelm is really an unhappy place. I've dealt with that and it just feels yucky. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a fun place to be. And the problem is if that continues on, we end up in a place of feeling emotionally exhausted. And when we feel emotionally exhausted, it's one of the hallmark characteristics of burnout. And then we just basically don't have anything more to give and we need to protect ourselves from what's going on. And burnout is ever too common in, in health professions. What do we do when these negative emotions creep in? You know, I think there's this popular misconception that the solution to these emotions is that we just have to acquire more knowledge. We believe that our uncertainty and self-doubt and overwhelm is because we lack the right information. We seek out courses as a solution. And it's not to say that new information isn't important, but more often than not, it's not the answer. And then second, we may try to boost our confidence levels. We think that if we can just improve our self-talk, bolster our confidence, and you know, and that will be the antidote to these emotions. But the reality is, is that having that confidence on a long-term basis, on a consistent basis, is really tough if we're not able to manage that uncertainty and the discomfort that goes along with that. And then finally, we might actually try to eradicate uncertainty. It's easy to compare ourselves to other therapists that just exude this confidence in their assessments and treatments, and everything seems to be very black and white for them. And unfortunately, we end up believing that a good therapist should have no hesitation or self-doubt. We think that we need to be able to embody that same level of confidence, but I don't think that's the answer either. And unfortunately, this also gets further reinforced by the pressures of feeling like we need to have all the answers for our patients because that's what they come to us for. And so any sense of uncertainty can sometimes feel like we're even letting them down. There's this uh, great quote that I was sharing with a friend the other day, and it's actually from a journal article from uh, Dr. Ronald Epstein and Edward Hundred on defining and assessing professional competence and speaks to this idea that, you know, really moving away from this black and white type of thinking. And they said that competence depends on habits of the mind that allow the practitioner to be attentive, curious, self-aware, and willing to recognize and correct errors. Those attributes can really be challenging, but I think it's important to remember that even when we see other therapists who seem so black and white and very confident in everything they're doing, that it's not necessarily something that we need to espouse and try to emulate because having that sense of curiosity and that sense of willing to recognize and correct errors, that there's a flexibility in that kind of thinking that I think is really important for us to embody. As I said, it's normal to experience discomfort in clinical practice as just a result of dealing with complex and uncertain situations. The challenge is that when discomfort starts to shake our confidence and prevents us from handling situations, we end up starting to feel a tremendous amount of self-doubt in everything that we do. That buildup of distress really is what's taking place can get accelerated or accentuated by a few key important uh, factors that I'm going to be talking about in a second. But when that distress starts to, again, occur on a more regular basis, we can start to feel the sense of overwhelm. And as I mentioned, that place of overwhelm is a really unpleasant place to be. And it just leaves us emotionally exhausted, which is, as I mentioned, one of the, the key attributes of, of burnout. 
how does one move to a place of distress and then to overwhelm and then to burnout? I think there are three key overwhelm accelerators that can impact the amount of uncertainty we can handle. Now, these particular factors, I think, can accelerate overwhelm, but they can also, in the reverse, help to protect us from overwhelm. First off, the, the key accelerator is our work environment. An unhealthy, stress-filled work environment is going to accelerate one's progression down this pathway to overwhelm and burnout. And frankly, there just are some workplaces that are really unhealthy uh, for healthy work and healthy living. One of the things I talked about in my last episode around attention and the importance of intention and clinical performance is that when we are trying to multitask, there's only so much that we can do and we truthfully can't multitask. It robs us of our ability to focus or robs us of our bandwidth to be able to take in data and stimuli to be able to understand what's going on with our patients in front of us. And part of this is that we end up in this really reactive sympathetic state. And that state narrows our focus and makes it more difficult to solve problems and decreases our problem solving capacity. We're going to talk a little bit about what you can do in this work environment, but in this part of the podcast, I just want to go through these three overwhelm accelerators, but I think work environment is a really big one and something that uh, oftentimes gets overlooked or we just assume that this is normal or we, we just accept that we're just in a unhealthy or really a, a stressful workplace and I guess we just have to make the best of it. And sometimes we do, but I think that sometimes we need to look at making changes as well in our workplace. The second overwhelm accelerator is our patient caseload. Sometimes our caseload may be too challenging for our current skill set and experience. And it may also be an issue of that it's not well suited to our skills or personality. A certain amount of uncertainty is normal, but if we're experiencing uncertainty on a constant basis, if it's unrelenting, then it's just going to make it more difficult to have that resilience to withstand the challenges of ongoing clinical practice. And it's really a matter of trying to tease out what's going on, how much uncertainty am I dealing with and what's causing that uncertainty and is that uncertainty a significant part of that? Is that coming from that patient caseload that I'm having? Now the third and final overwhelm accelerator is our self state and self state is just our sense of being. And it's another important aspect in terms of how we handle uncertainty in our clinical work. When we have a strong centered self state, we're going to be able to withstand the challenges, whether they're internal challenges or external. But when our self state is less robust, if we're feeling depleted, if we're having a difficult time navigating our inner world, it's easy to become defensive or just even to react to seemingly small things. And that self state aspect can easily move us to a place of distress to a place of overwhelm because our ability to be resilient is decreased and it really can accelerate that process. So if we just uh, do a quick recap, we have these different areas that create clinical uncertainty for us, patient diagnoses, treatment planning challenges, patient dynamics, and this can move us from a place of comfort to a place of discomfort. And that discomfort can then move to a place of distress and the three overwhelm accelerators of our workplace or patient load and our self state can then accelerate that 
experience of distress into a place of overwhelm. And that overwhelm can lead to emotional exhaustion, which then is uh, part of what uh, we call burnout. So how do we stay in this sweet spot where we're not necessarily too comfortable, but we're not also in this place of overwhelm? And I want to share with you three ways to stay in a better, healthier place, because I think when we're in that healthier place, we're going to be able to perform better. We're going to be able to enjoy our work more, and we're going to get better outcomes really at the end of the day. First and foremost, though, I want to let you know that these emotions are normal and they are a part of clinical work and you're not alone if you feel that way. There's so many pressures on us. There's pressures from employers. There's pressure from our patients. There's the pressure that we put on ourselves. And more often than not, we can often feel like we're not measuring up. And when we feel like we're not measuring up, that even adds an extra layer of pressure because now we feel like uh, we're not good enough. And now it starts to affect our identity as a person, as a clinician. And I hope that with what I share uh, in these next three strategies that I really hope that you, some of that pressure starts to dissipate a little bit and you can put that aside because navigating this internal world of discomfort and distress and overwhelm can, can is challenging enough. And I think that we need to reduce the pressure levels a little bit so that we can start to see more clearly what's actually really driving our emotions and behavior in our clinical life. All right, so let's dive in. So the number one thing that I would say is not even necessarily the number one thing, but I would say the first item is to really lean into the discomfort. I think it's important that we challenge the beliefs around discomfort and uncertainty and really try to see if we can find a new understanding that will improve our clinical performance. If we can accept this idea that uncertainty and discomfort are normal and that they're, in, they're expected in our clinical practice, then what happens is that we can actually begin to shift our relationship to these experiences and these emotions. So rather than pushing away discomfort and uncertainty, I would like to encourage you to see it as an invitation, which you may say, well, that's easier said than done. And it is, this is not easy work, any of this stuff, but I think it's such a crucial and important work. There was this uh, article I was reading called warning bells, how clinicians leverage their discomfort to manage moments of uncertainty. And in this article, they look at different clinicians that are working in an ER environment, and they share this importance of tuning into the dance between comfort and discomfort. So the clinicians that were able to manage their discomfort well, I'm quoting from the article here, they were able to manage experiences of uncertainty by monitoring the evolving balance between discomfort and comfort during these moments continually revisiting and revising their sense of whether their management approaches were working. There's just really this balance, almost a seesaw of we're, we're moving from a place of comfort, we're moving to a place of discomfort. Hey, I just wanted to have a quick pause to introduce you to today's podcast sponsor, Soul. They're off the shelf moldable insoles, and it's the brand of insoles that I recommend to my patients and have for years. The reason I recommend them is that they're heat moldable by the patient, they've got a great arch support and they come with options to help with different foot issues. It's really easy for customers to order and when you refer them to Soul, they get free shipping and 10% off. Make sure to check them out at YourSoul.com forward slash health dash professionals. That's Y-O-U-R-S-O-L-E dot com forward slash health dash professionals. All right, back to the show. Moving from a place of discomfort to a place back to comfort. 
it's really about understanding and tuning into that seesaw that can take place between comfort and discomfort within our own selves. What does this look like practically? I think for myself, I found that it is helpful to see discomfort as a friend and not a foe. I, I really have been working over the last number of years to really move out of a place of rigid mental models and moving instead to a place of more agile and open thinking. It's like what I was saying in terms of when we see therapists that just are so confident and everything is black and white and there is no gray. Instead, I think what we need to be looking at is how do we, how do we maintain and support that place of curiosity, that place of creativity, that place of collaboration with our patients. And I think that requires a certain amount of agility in our thinking and a certain amount of openness in that. And that also means that we need to be able to welcome discomfort into our experience and not see it as something that we have to push away, that we have to ignore, that we have to shut down. And in this situation, I think that simple mantras can actually make a big difference. They're just repeated phrases or affirmations. And, but mantras are great because what they do is they help us to stay focused on the state that we want to maintain. For example, reminding yourself that discomfort is okay can be a good place to start. So what does that look like? Let's say that you're starting to feel some of this discomfort in your uh, interaction with a patient. If you can remind yourself in your own head, this discomfort's okay. Someone, a patient starts to get emotional, explaining about their pain experience and, and their frustration with maybe a lack of progress. It's really easy to start to flip that and say, oh, I'm a bad therapist because of what that patient is sharing. But instead, if we can maintain a place of openness, a place of receptivity, and one of the ways that we can do that is as that patient is sharing, you can say, discomfort right now is okay. I can be present with this discomfort. I can be present with this patient. Now, for us who have perfectionist tendencies, I find that a powerful mantra is, it's okay not to have all the answers. And reminding yourself of that, it's okay not to have all the answers. Again, I talked about this challenge of the pressures that can make it so difficult, make it even more difficult to navigate these internal terrains of emotion. The pressures of our employers, the pressures of our patients, the pressures on ourselves. And that perfectionist tendency increases that pressure on ourselves. And having an antidote for that, and just simply having a mantra where you remind yourself that it's okay not to have all the answers. And I think this is also why understanding our self-state is so crucial. When I can internally acknowledge the discomfort that I'm feeling, I am starting to take a, an important step in moving forward into that dance between discomfort and comfort. What I've found is that there's often this precognitive experience that I can feel. There's a tightening in my chest or maybe my breathing starts to shift often find that my fingers start to get clammy and cold. Bit of that sympathetic response, really. I may even feel a visceral discomfort, you know, tensing or tightening in my gut. And what I find is that when I can acknowledge those bodily sensations, it allows me to start to enter and explore that discomfort cognitively. Now, sometimes this is hard to do in the moment, but I think that if we can start to tune into our body experience, we can then start to engage with that discomfort on a more cognitive or intellectual level. 
I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've made is pushing these emotions away and thinking that being away from the clinic, getting a holiday, getting a good night's sleep will solve the problem. Now, not to say that those things aren't great, but more often than not, it doesn't equip us with the skill to navigate that seesaw between comfort and discomfort in our clinical practice. In terms of leaning into discomfort, I think when we can recognize that it's part of the journey and it's not possible to be certain about everything all the time. And so when we can sit with that discomfort and not try to push it away, we can start to get more comfortable with the nuance of discomfort in our own clinical life and in our own internal world. So the next strategy is to focus on hypothesis-driven decision-making. And this is one of the biggest changes I've found in my own clinical practice has been as a result of really leaning into hypothesis-driven decision-making, otherwise known as the hypothetical deductive model. <laughs> but I think hypothesis-driven decision-making is a little easier to say. And I, the reality is we're always constantly dealing with imperfect and incomplete information. When we can approach our assessment findings and diagnostic impression as a hypothesis to be tested and confirmed, then we can shift away from this idea of one right or one wrong answer. It takes a bit of the pressure off as you adapt to new information that becomes available to you during the course of treatment. This approach takes some of the pressure off as you adapt to new information that becomes available to you during the course of treatment. And it also acknowledges uncertainty and, and really gives you a bit of breathing room, a little bit of space to operate within. It allows you to adjust and refine your diagnostic hypothesis based on whether that information confirms or disconfirms your initial hypothesis. What does this look like practically? I think one of the things that I've found useful in embracing this hypothesis-driven decision-making in my clinical practice is really shifting the language that I use with my patients. I incorporate a hypothesis-oriented language with my patients. I'll say, I'll use words like my impression of what I see is X based on these particular findings. And so I want to provide treatment Y, and then I want to reevaluate to see what changes we take place over this next one or two sessions. And so what it does is it allows the patient to enter into this place of hypothesis-driven decision-making as well and, and recognizing that the body is complex, the body is unique, and we're on a journey together here. I also find that for myself, how I talk to myself about my assessment findings is also really important. I'll use words in my own self-talk around assessment hypothesis. I'm going to test my hypothesis. Whatever words that you find work to highlight the sense that there is some uncertainty in things, and that's okay. You know, I really try to embrace a bit of doubt in my assessment findings, trying to identify the biases that I may have, not just jumping to conclusions around what that diagnosis is based on a hunch or whatever. Not to discount our experience, but I think that having some doubt is healthy. It helps us to challenge and question ourselves and it also what it does is it helps us to avoid holding on too tightly to a particular diagnosis. In my group coaching program for therapists, I help therapists create a decision-making map to take some of that stress out of assessing and treating patients and really incorporate that hypothesis-driven approach to understanding and treating their patients. 
Now, if you're feeling especially distressed during a patient assessment or feeling stumped, I think it's helpful to ask that question of what's one thing that I could do right now to move the needle for this patient. Sometimes there's so much data, we do so many different tests, and we feel, again, that just more data is going to somehow get us the answer. But more often than not, it can actually just paralyze us and overwhelm us in that moment. And if we can just narrow it down to what's one thing that I can do. I found one of the things that's been helpful for myself is just this idea of the layers of an onion. Treat what we see at a certain level, holding on to a hypothesis of what's going on. And as those layers of the onion start to peel away, and we take those layers off, then we can get more clarity as to whether our hypothesis is still intact or whether it needs to be revisited. The third strategy is to actually just address one of one or more of the overwhelm accelerators that I highlighted earlier in the episode. We look at the areas of workplace environment, patient caseload, and your self-state. What I want to do right now is briefly dive into some of the changes that you could make across each of these different accelerators. Let's start with workplace. Sometimes there are changes that you can make and sometimes there are not. Knowing the difference in terms of changes that you can make or not is can be a challenge. I've talked to many therapists over the years who have been in really tough work environments. They're recently come out of school dealing with an unsupportive uh, boss, dealing with really challenging patients, not having enough supports in place to be successful in their work and they were really trying to to make it a go i know for myself i had a scenario prior to being a physio where i was working at a place that was really quite unhealthy for me i think both the role and the people i was working with was just not healthy and i remember having this belief about myself that i would just never quit and i felt that I needed to push through, that I needed to be successful. I needed to prove myself that I could do this uh, this particular position. But unfortunately, I just stayed there too long. And it actually was not only draining emotionally for me to work there, but in some ways was damaging to my sense of self. I started to question my abilities. I started to question my confidence, not even at a superficial level, but at a deeper level as well. And that scenario really highlighted that sometimes certain situations and certain experiences are not worth it. They're not worth the prestige or the boost to the ego at some level, because on another level, it really is uh, harmful to ourselves. Recognizing that difference can be difficult, which is why I think it's so important that we have people in our lives that we can talk through these situations with that can understand whether this is something to work through or something that we actually need to exit from those kind of support people in our lives can really make a a big, big difference for ourselves. What I want to do now is just go through some really practical ways to make changes in your current workplace. And hopefully uh, some of these ideas are things that you haven't come across before that could help you in your situation. So first off, I think you can just see fewer patients per hour. That's a really important lever that you can apply. It could be increasing your assessment time, increasing your treatment session length. It could be also avoiding double booking patients. Something that I found helpful is even having a break after say three or four patients so that you have a buffer before your next group of patients. And then I think also another really key thing is just to give yourself a physical break in your clinical day. We need a chance to eat, to drink, 
go to the bathroom, and, and most importantly, just have a few minutes of mental and physical pause before we see our next uh, set of patients. Let's now talk about patient load. The, the types of patients that we're seeing can also alter the amount of uncertainty that we're experiencing. Something that I've found helpful is asking a more seasoned therapist to see your patient while you're observing their approach. And something that I think is then very valuable is to ensure that there's an opportunity to debrief and reflect afterwards to deepen your own learning experience. I know I've had therapists do that with me when they wanted to see how I was assessing a shoulder or a hip. And they've, they found the, the experience really valuable just to be able to observe and then talk through the process together afterwards. So if you're finding yourself seeing a certain type of patient population and you just find it really stressful, it might be something to talk to your clinic reception to reduce the number of those types of patients in your caseload. If you have a particular type of patient that you find energizing, so there's on the flip side, right? Maybe you feel less uncertain treating these types of patients. Highlighting that to reception can be a really uh, beneficial thing, but also letting other therapists in your work setting know this. And then even taking other proactive steps to market your specific skill set and that particular po patient population to other healthcare workers, colleagues in the community. Anything that you can do to just increase that amount of type of patient in your caseload can really help to offset the uncertainty that you may be experiencing with other patients. Now with self-state, I think that learning the contours of your inner self is not easy. Right? I think that we're always so focused on our clinical skills, we focus on those hard, tangible skills. And I know there's often talk about the soft skills and how we need to spend more time on the soft skills, which oftentimes is relating to our patient interaction and therapeutic relationship. But I think there's also this other element around the work of, of understanding ourself, understanding what triggers our discomfort and distress, what impacts our resiliency in our clinical life. All of these things take time and sometimes can feel a little bit messy, but I think there are a few things that you can do to help navigate this inner world. First off, I think that completing a short end of day meditation can really be helpful just to be present in your own body and to experience that visceral aspect to ourselves can really be beneficial. I also find that even carving out 10 to 15 minutes to journal or uh, jot down different uh, thoughts around a particular patient situation can really be helpful. And then finally, identifying strategies to increase your physical, emotional, and spiritual energy stores can really be helpful as well. So the key is to focus on things that you can actually change. What are the things that you can change right now with your workplace environment? What are the things that you can start to shift with your patient caseload to reduce the amount of uncertainty that you're dealing with on a daily basis. And then finally, look at your self-state. What are the things that you can do to start to understand yourself, start to navigate that inner world of discomfort that we experience, the emotions that can sometimes be unpleasant? And I think that implementing small changes across each of these areas can really make a big difference in terms of how far down the path of distress, overwhelm, and burnout you end up moving. We've covered a lot of ground and I want to just give a little recap before wrapping up this episode. So I started off by talking about the pathway where we experience clinical uncertainty, which is something that we experience every day because of the complexity of treating patients. And that uncertainty can trigger discomfort, which can move us out of a place of 
comfort that we may have previously been in. That discomfort, if it's not well managed, can lead to distress. And that distress can then lead to overwhelm. And overwhelm, if it's not dealt with and if it's more persistent, can lead to emotional exhaustion, which is one of the attributes of burnout. And a lot of the ways that we try to deal with these emotions really aren't effective in the long run. We need to find a way to be able to navigate this inner world in the emotions that come with dealing with uncertainty in a healthier way and also a more sustainable way. There really were three overwhelm accelerators that I talked about, our workplace and our patient load and then our self-state. Really looking at the ways that we can address and improve those three areas can make a big difference in terms of whether we move from a place of distress into a place of overwhelm or if we can actually manage ourselves and stay resilient in the face of uncertainty. I shared three ways that can help you to stay in more of a sweet spot when it comes to managing this balance between comfort and discomfort. First off was to lean into discomfort and really looking at discomfort as a friend, not a foe, and highlighted the importance of mantras that we can give ourselves to stay present in the face of discomfort. The second was to focus more on a hypothesis-driven decision-making approach, allowing a certain amount of uncertainty in our decision-making framework so that we can stay present and that we can stay flexible in terms of what's going on in the face of uncertainty. And then third, I uh, talked about different ways to address one or more of the overwhelm accelerators, whether that's in your workplace, whether that's with your patient caseload, or whether that's in your own personal self-state. Dealing with uncertainty, discomfort, and overwhelm can be tough and draining, but I think the cost of ignoring these emotions really can leave us at risk of chronic overwhelm and burnout. When we can lean into the, to discomfort and take a hypothesis-driven decision-making approach to our clinical work, what it does is it gives us this much-needed space to manage this dance between discomfort and comfort. And finally, I hope that exploring the impact of overwhelm accelerators on your emotional state can give you some practical areas of change so that you can increase your clinical flow and enjoyment. Thank you for hanging out with me today and hearing how to improve your clinical performance. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to stay up to date on future episodes. Here's to less frustration, more flow, and better clinical results. Till next time.